Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us because we think that helps us draw more power out of the scriptures, and we need all of that power that we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and this is a, a Christmas short cast. So I've already done an episode with the chapels uh, about uh, spending Christmas in Jerusalem and Bethlehem that uh, I hope you've listened to by now, and, and hopefully it's uh, was powerful for you. This will be just a short cast sharing some ideas that I hope in some ways kind of wraps up um, the Old Testament and launches us into the New Testament uh, in, in a way that is is helpful. Uh, next week, we'll have a, a wonderful interview with uh, Andrew Skinner. Uh, about the historically what happens in between the Old and the New Testament that helps us also understand the New Testament. But this time it's it's more of a Christmas focus. So what we want to do before we jump into the Christmas is make sure that we understand or we, we just want to summarize some of the things we've learned about Jehovah during this last year of studying the Old Testament. I feel like we've studied the Old Testament more as, as a church membership more than we ever have before. And that we have a better feel for what God uh, was trying to do there and who Jehovah is. And I hope that one of the things that's happened is you've come to recognize the the dual nature of Jehovah. Jehovah is majestic and powerful and amazing, more than we can understand, so much so that uh, when Ezekiel or others try to see uh, or, or see him in vision and they try to describe it, they just can't describe it. His might and majesty is beyond description and beyond our ability to comprehend. I think even when when these prophets see him, they can't fully comprehend that might and majesty. They're just overwhelmed by it. And obviously their natures have to be changed in order to withstand that presence. And Moses talks about that. And afterwards he says, now I know that man is nothing, which thing I never have supposed before. And so he's this being of amazing might and majesty and at the same time intimately connected with us. That's another thing I hope you've gained from this year as we've talked about covenant and relationships, that he wants a very intimate, close relationship with you. That's why he's established the covenant. It's why he sent his son. It's why we have the plan of salvation. Uh, and he is unceasingly willing to show mercy to us and help us. And those are the, the two aspects we need to understand. And so we'll get um, people like Isaiah. We had a podcast, their short cast on uh, Isaiah 25 and 27, where we contrasted where Isaiah talks about... Um, he uses in chapter 27, verse 1, this, this phraseology. In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent. So that's a chaos monster. And he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. So there, that's the divine warrior with a great, amazing sword doing battle for us, right? And then we get uh, just before that in, in chapter 25, uh, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, he, meaning Jehovah, he will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. Right? And as a result, those who have waited on Jehovah will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's in verse 9. So the reason that he can wipe away our tears is because he is a divine warrior that can come out and conquer. He's the creator. He created this world and worlds without end. Uh, so much so that we can't know them or see them or understand them, God says, but they are, they can't be numbered under man, but they are numbered unto me for they are mine and I know them. So it's overwhelming enough to see him as the creator of this world. This world is so magnificent and beautiful and amazing. And the forces that are at work in this world are mind boggling. And yet they're all uh, an expression of God and what he can do. And then we multiply that by literally the infinite. 
and we see all that he has created. That is an amazing being. And that amazing being will come and do battle for us. He will destroy the Egyptian army. He will destroy other armies. He will lay uh, cities waste. Um, he will move the heaven and the earth literally uh, and cause the face of the land to change and, and so on. Right. He will do all these things. Uh, and, and so much so that we, if we just look at the, the most famous incident, the one that they continually refer to in the Old Testament, if we look at the Exodus, uh, the Israelites are surrounded by an army that's the greatest army in the world and, and way too much for them. And they're told in Exodus 14, 13, fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And then he assures them, the Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. And then they're delivered in an unexpected and miraculous way. And they say the Lord is a man of war, and they praise him for triumphing gloriously and extol his ability to erase the great Egyptian army with a blast of his nostrils. That's all in Exodus 15. Uh, that's, that's amazing stuff. And as a result of knowing how powerful God is, then it means something when he says, like he does in, in Deuteronomy as he's talking about the covenant, fear not, neither be discouraged. Or in Psalms 46, be still and know that I am God. Right? Those things mean something when we see the might and majesty of this being, a being who not only has come out and conquered people to protect his people, but to assures us that he will come out. And in and, and Isaiah 63, he talks about in the future because of his loving kindness and his desire to show goodness and mercy to us, he will come out in fury upon those who are oppressing his covenant people. Uh, and and that allows him the chance to uh, show mercy to us. He is the Lord of hosts, which is better translated as the Lord of armies, right? He is a majestic being, the divine warrior, the divine creator, the, the great redeemer and deliverer and savior, Jehovah of the Old Testament, a truly, truly majestic being beyond our ability to understand or describe majestic both in terms of his abilities, his uh, omnipotence, right, omnipotent, uh, all-powerful, his omniscience, ability to know everything, and being omnimerciful and loving, uh, magnificent in his ability to forgive. Remember Isaiah um, when he says uh, that his thoughts, I think it's Isaiah 56 if I remember right, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways. He says that specifically in context of, I will pardon abundantly. I will forgive people. Why? Because I know and understand more than you do, and so I'm both willing and able to do this kind of forgiving. That's worth understanding. Now, as we think about that majestic being, let's talk about what Nephi refers to, or the angel uh, that speaks with Nephi and Nephi refers to as his condescension. Right? The condescension of God is both the condescension of the Father and having his son born uh, to a mortal woman, but also the condescension of the son in coming to this earth and humbling himself to be subject to all of the things of this earth. And maybe we can just talk a little bit about what we know about Nazareth and the areas around there and so on. So Christ grows up in Nazareth. He's born in Bethlehem. We'll talk about that birth in a minute, but he's born in Bethlehem. He grows up in Nazareth. It's a town of a few hundred people. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows what's going on with everyone else. Very conservative town. It's one of the most rural and one of the most humble areas in all of Jewry. Uh, it, it's in the Galilee area. That's the the more humble part of uh, where Jews live in the Holy Land. 
And it's among the most humble of that humble. It's the backwater of the backwater of the backwater, and it's where they're just so poor. Um, almost everyone there, uh, we can tell from from archaeological evidence, most people there were involved either in in hard labor, in in building, or in um, agriculture. Uh, and agricultural uh, living in that area wasn't the most uh, abundant agricultural yields anywhere, and so. Uh, a lot of rocks that the valley down below had some Nazareth had some springs. And so that's probably why they live there, but that it's, it's in the mountains. And so it's a little bit tougher. Um, it's what we might call subsistence la uh, labor, right? They, their, their major economic goal was day-to-day -day survival. And uh, certainly there were a group that were truly desti uh, destitute, but most of them were, were gliding just above subsistence level. They're, they're hard pressed, but able through substantial and unrelenting work to feed themselves. But, there will often be disasters like a bad, bad rain, hail at the wrong time, you know, not enough rain, hail at the wrong time, uh, locusts or whatever else that make it so that they have a year that doesn't work. And then they can't they forfeit on their debts and they uh, they're going to be sold into slavery or, or uh, lose their family or lose their land or something along those lines. Right. So the savior will spend most of his area, like 70 to 80 percent of his ministry will be in the Galilee area. He'll spend a lot of that in the towns that are on the lakeshore, which are like Capernaum or Magdala. Those are the towns that are doing a little bit better. And yet still, they're they're not very wealthy. But someplace like Nazareth, where the Savior grows up, really is is struggling. Um, the, the streets would be narrow. They're just made of hard-packed dirt. The house floors would be have been made of hard-packed dirt. There's no running water. There's no sewer system. Uh, they don't bathe the way we we would think of bathing. They probably either just splash themselves in springs, or when they're at the sea, they can get in the lake, or it's really a lake, uh, and 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 so on. But not there's nothing like what we would um, think of as the necessities, or even what a Roman town would have. Um, we, as uh, the homes are made mostly of uh, getting field stones, so just normal stones, and and mortaring them together with mud, and then putting uh, a roof on of of reed and palm leaves, and so on. Um, which works uh, for a while, but is always going to be in need of repair. Uh, in Nazareth, we know that also there were a number of homes where they would just carve part of the home right into the limestone cliffside. So they just kind of create the home by by creating a cave, their own little cave, but with walls and and so on and, and rooms. Uh, and then uh, the outside part would be these field stones with mortar, uh, mud mortar and so on. Uh, and that's the kind of work that Joseph would have done. Uh, he was a builder, so not a carpenter because there wasn't a lot of wood and a lot of woodwork. He probably did some of that, but most of the work and building was done with stone. So he was probably above all else a stonemason, and this would have been tough. Um, if we look at the Savior's parables, it, it provides a hint of the kinds of places he lived and the people he interacted with. Uh, they're, they're full of agricultural metaphors, uh, lots of stories about people who can't pay their debts or being cast into prison because they can't pay their debts or having their, their land divided uh, for inheritance and in losing the land or stories of people who are hungry or naked or without a place to stay uh, and, and so on. So you see he's drawing on their common experiences. That tells you what the common experiences are, the people that he grew up around. Um, as he talks about the hungry and the naked uh, or uh, the dismay over uh, people doing things, uh, costly things rather than taking care of the poor and so on. Um, so and, and, and we also know that nutrition wasn't very good in these places and diseases uh, often were common. So most people did not live that long. Uh, lots of people died from infection. Most people lost most of their teeth by the time they were, or at least a good number of teeth by the time they were adults. Um, 
They uh, they suffered from all sorts of of difficulties. It's just a tough life that the Savior came into. When the divine warrior, the great Jehovah, condescended, it was really a condescension. Think about his birth in Bethlehem. Uh, he was born in a stable, which was most likely a cave, uh, and and in a stone manger. And we'll talk more about that when we get to Luke two. But again, these are humble circumstances. So. Um, we've got this great man of war who destroyed the greatest army on earth with a blast of his nostrils um, being laid in a, a little bit of stone with some straw around him as his crib and being raised uh, with no running water and no sewers and, and hard work, uh, his lot in life uh, as he walks on, on muddy or, or dusty streets and uh, half of his friends are uh, – not able to get by and, and uh, you know, losing land or family members to destitution and slavery because of debt and so on. Um, that's real condescension. And of course, he was willing to do that because of his love for the Father and for us, and thus his desire to fulfill the covenant blessings uh, that were promised to us. He came to earth to go through these things to show us the example, and then ultimately to suffer for us so that he could conquer death and hell as the true divine warrior, conquering our greatest enemies. And so he was willing to condescend in this way. And I think hopefully we can understand that better now as a result of having studied the Old Testament and coming becoming a little more familiar with the great Jehovah, the great, mighty, majestic, omnipotent, omniscient, uh, omnipresent, omni-loving man of war, divine warrior, full of love and kindness and chesed and mercy and uh, abundantly pardoning, that great Jehovah condescending to come to the most humble of circumstances and suffer through many of the, the normal and even more difficult deprivations of life in order to save us. I am so grateful that our Father was willing to send him and that he was willing to come. And that's a thing that's worth remembering and celebrating here at Christmas time. And of that I testify, and for that I praise God and his Son in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.